so, we have been doing the book of Romans, okay? And in Romans, written by Paul, Paul okay? In Romans, we have started with some very large views. Big views from way up top. Those are eyeballs, okay? <laughs> They're looking down across this whole huge uh, situation, okay? And the situation here that we're in, first of all, as God looks down on the earth, No. Oh, okay, good. Oh, it's the earth. That's the earth. Okay? There you go. As he looks down on the earth, he sees mankind. That's exactly drawn to scale, by the way. All right. <coughs> um, it's the other way around. Yeah. Not if you're on this side of the world. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, can't you see it in there? No. You're not looking very good. <laughs> So, uh, God is looking down on mankind, okay? Mankind. There they are. My gosh. Two of them. Okay? And saying, this is how I see it. Now, Paul's writing about what he, what God basically sees from us. And helping us understand how God sees it. How God looked across mankind, even before he created mankind, he knew all the things that would happen from day one all the way to the last. Okay? And that's the mystery of God. How does he act already knowing? And does that change? I, I don't know. That's that you could ponder and philosophize. Good. Do that. Um, on all of God's view from a long way back. But what we are concerned about when God looks down on earth is what does he see in humankind? What does he see? The very first thing is he says, I created this entire world with enough information, enough mystery, enough organization mathematically, scientifically, it rolls together this earth with a big stamp of some being created this. And with that stamp, mankind should look and say, this being is clearly bigger than we are. This being, this mind, this creator, this, we'll call him God, okay, because he did amazing things as you look outside and you see the beauty and the ability for the earth to change and move across many things that we did. And for us to think that we as a person have, or, or even as mankind, has destroyed or do, done anything beyond what God can fix or repair or even what he did in his own creation is thinking pretty highly of ourselves. God created mankind, has stripped stuff out of things, and done all kinds of crazy things, and nature, God created nature to go back and just cover over things. It's really amazing to see. You can go and you can work to plow a field and clear it all and take a whole woods down and just dig all the earth up, and what will happen as soon as you leave it alone? It grows back in and the woods will grow back. 
with time. But it happens because God created nature to do that. So all of those things, mankind should look and say, there's a God and we should worship him because he's clearly better than us. But mankind does not do that. Mankind looks and says, I am so important. Right? Self. That becomes the big problem. And that's where God says, you've looked across this world and you've said, I'm going to worship myself instead. I'm going to worship the creature rather than the creator. Because I feel I'm so important. And with that, then God says, you have no idea. You don't match up to my level. You don't match up. You are sinful. You're wrong in how you approach this. You've turned your back on God and become sinful. So everybody is sinful. And that's what we learn in the next couple of... Everybody's sinful. Everybody's done wrong. Everybody's turned away. Okay? Whether it was God's chosen people, the Jewish people, or everybody else, which what do we call that? There's a word. starts with a G. The Gentiles. So the Jews... God's chosen people or the Gentiles, everybody's sinful. And it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Right? So if I have a measurement and I have a tape measure and I say to you, the measurement to meet is six foot six. Okay? And I come across you guys and say, anybody measure up? I don't either. Not six foot six. So if you don't, you're all condemned. Right? That's the measure. You can't do it. And you can say, well, I can get a box and stand on it, but that's not you. Right? That's not you. That's you trying to do, make yourself into something you're not. You have to be six foot six to measure up. Well, that's the way God says you have to be perfect to measure up, and you're not. And, and in Romans, Paul says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, you, you, God's measurement is way up there, and we come and say, aren't we perfect? And God says, you're not. You've now missed the whole point. You don't understand what happened. You're not measuring up. You can never measure up. And so what did God do? Because we don't understand as a human race. Hmm. What did God give us to teach us that we weren't measuring up? The law, okay? Somebody's pointing to the Bible, somebody says the Ten Commandments. Yes, either way, the law. And the law basically gives, started out with very simple Ten Commandments, right? They said, here's ten things that God says don't do. You'll mess up on even just these ten. Right? You'll, you'll mess up on these things. Obey your parents. There you go. There's one. How have you all done? Everybody perfect on that one? Because can't even make one, much less all the other ones, the Ten Commandments. That is, and by the way, me neither, right? I missed it too. So every human has come short of just this basic stuff that God says, here, try this. You can't even do this. Much less 
behind that law, when Jesus comes and says, it's not about just murdering somebody, it's about the hatred you feel. You shouldn't feel hatred. And then, a whole bunch of people who thought they were getting the rules just right, all of a sudden realized they're, they are a sinful being. And that's what the law is here to do. The law shows us that we are sinful. That's its job. It shows us. It teaches us. When we think we're getting pretty good, go back and check the law and you say, oh, I guess I didn't really do that quite as good as I thought. I guess I wasn't quite as perfect as I thought. All right? So that is where we start. That, that law is written down. Now last week, we learned that God gave us an opportunity. God, Jesus Christ came to earth, he died, and he gave us an opportunity to fix this. So here we are, we're sinful, we got no hope, right? And God, God says, I'm going to send my son, my son's going to die, and what does that give you? What does that do for you? It pays for our sin, okay? And that's, that is one way that we say it, pays for our sin. Or it covers our sin, okay? Basically, he put himself in your position. And so you then got to become, if you believe, you have the right now once you believe in God, to become a child of God. So if you're the child of a king, okay, you're born to be a king. We'll say you're, you're a legitimate, we'll say your father's a king, all right? <laughs> and you're born as a child of a king. That gives you does that make you a king or a queen right away? But it gives you the position, right? It puts you in line to say you now have the position to be in a king, a king or a queen. So now I'm in my position. So positionally, we say you are a queen. You're a child of the king. So the same way we have been put positionally, if we believe in Christ, we become a child of the king of kings. We are royalty by position. Now you, as royalty as a position with your father the king, back to you and your father, immediately does that make you a good queen if you become a queen? Nope. But you're still a queen, right? They put a crown on your head one day, because your father passes it down now, and you now become the queen, and they say, you now are the queen. Day one, you're not a good queen, right? Because you have no idea what to do. You've got a lot to learn, and you will make mistakes, but it does not take away the fact that you're queen. So there are two different things. Jesus has put us into this position to say, you are a child of the king of kings. You have that position. Now what are you going to do with that position? Right? What are you going to do with that position? 
So if you believe, you believe and you say, I know Jesus died for me and he forgave my sins because God promised it. So that's faith, right? Faith is belief in God's promises. So we believe that we're forgiven. So now we are because we believe and we have faith in God. So now I'm positionally, I'm a king or a queen. I'm one of God's children. But then there's this great struggle. So you should have it all right, right? Last week we learned that, and your position says, because God saved me, I should be dead to sin. So am I dead to sin? Once you become a Christian, once you believe in God, do you become perfect? Why not? Isn't God all-powerful? Couldn't he do that? <laughs> he could. So you, but you're in the position, right? But now, and you can be, and you're in the position to be, that you have victory. We sing a song, victory in Jesus, right? So shouldn't we have victory over all sin and we should never sin again? You should never complain about anybody. You should never say a bad word about anybody. Never think a bad thought about anybody. You should never have a bad attitude. You should never look at something you shouldn't look at. You should never touch anything you shouldn't. You shouldn't go anywhere. You're all done. And yet, our struggle shows us that we're not there. Positionally, we believe. In our mind, we know. But our struggle is, I seem to still be able to say, nasty words to people. I still can do things that I'm embarrassed about. I still struggle without looking at this or doing this or saying this or thinking this. It is still a great battle. And that is the battle we're going to talk about today. The battle inside. There's something going on inside of you. Battle inside. And what is that battle? All right, let's take a look. Romans chapter number 7. We're going to just take some highlights out of Romans chapter 7. Verse number 4 to start. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Okay, this is your position. Now, Paul, before this verse, talks about a woman that gets married. He says, here's an example. There's a woman that gets married, right? And she goes, and what do you have to do to get legally married? You have to sign a paper. What is that paper? It's a marriage license. And it's a, it's a contract, but it is a marriage license, and that makes it a legal marriage. And where does that marriage license go? To the government. To the town hall, right? And they keep on file and say, you are legally married. Okay? When with that legal marriage status, if you said, eh, I'm tired of being married to this person. I pick another one. Can you do that legally? No. You have to 
stop the contract, right? And in fact, in Paul's day, there were divorces, but it was very uncommon. Most of the time, what you did was if that person just wanted somebody else, you didn't do that. You were married till that person died. Okay? So by death, now the guy dies. She wants somebody else. The guy dies. If she waits until he's dead, legally, she's not bound, right? Because he's dead. Right? <laughs> right? So it's all done. Contract's all done. The law says, yep, you are absolved from that. You now can move on. If she says, I'm going to stay married to him, and I'm going to get married to somebody else. Can you do that? Can't do it. Right? That's not legal to do. You can't do that. So you have to wait until you're released from the law, and you can't have two marriage licenses legally. Not in the U.S., you can't. Uh, not legally. Okay? So with that you are released from your contract when you die. The law holds you to it until he dies, and then you're free. It's the very same thing positionally. Christ came in and killed sin in you, and you are now free to live another way. Before, you were bound. You had no choice. You didn't even know what you were into. You, are, you were born of a sinful nature. But when Christ came in and you said, I believe, he changed you. And you now no longer have to be bound to sin. So you're free to live another way. But we don't very often. We struggle with that. We say, eh, it's really hard for me to get rid of this sin. Every one of us struggles with that. Me included. We struggle with that sin. So... But he has given you freedom to do good things. So now you have freedom. Right? The contract is gone. You have freedom to have fruit for God. In other words, you can do great things. You can do wonderful things. And if you decide you're going to live for God, then you decide you're going to do things and you have become positionally a son of God or a daughter of God, right? What does God do for those things you do well? What will God do? He's going to reward you at the end. Is he going to reward somebody who does not believe in him? Nope. Because they don't have a position of being a child of God. They have to have believed in Christ. They have to believe in his son and forgiveness from him. Okay? So, with that, you are now free to do good things. Verse 5 and 6, please. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit Okay, so when we lived with sin, when we lived before we believed in God, everything we did just brought us closer to death. Go ahead. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit, and not 
All right, so the letter is the letter of the law. You've heard of the letter of the law, right? When we were trying to live by that old way with the law and say, well, I should do good. I should do the right thing. But without the spirit of God in it, you don't have the ability to. You can't do it. And without having positionally been forgiven and become a child of God, you have no way to accomplish it. So you need the spirit of God. So do you have to follow the Ten Commandments? Yes. What do you think? Do you think yes? What do you think? Yes, what do you think? You weren't quite as... No. <laughs> but like... So when you read and say in the Old Testament, and it says you shall not eat blood, does that mean you can't eat a raw steak? Well, you shouldn't, but... <laughs> People eat bloody steak all the time. Yeah, but it's not... They had to specially drain the blood out of meat. Make sure there was not a drop of blood. Does that mean you're sin, sinning when you eat a medium steak and it bleeds? I sure <laughs> because the law was written to point to sinfulness, but you are free. All right. You are free from the law. You're dead to the law. Now, are those still God's standards? Yeah. They're still God's standards. And so there are things, obeying your parents is a good thing, right? Obeying your parents is the right thing. But you have to do it with the spirit of the law, with the spirit of God, and not by the letter of the law. Because those people who were doing things by the letter of the law said, um, said, I can't work on the Sabbath day. So work is considered carrying a loaf of bread. Okay, because that's work. But if together, you and I pick up the loaf of bread, it's not work. Because it's only half a loaf of bread. Okay. Or they said traveling is work and forbidden on the Sabbath day. So I can't leave my property. Right? I can't leave my property. So Instead, I take some, a little handful of dirt from my property, and I can only go so far, and then I walk, and I drop a little bit of my property on there, so I'm still on my property. These are the kinds of things that they did saying, I'm following the law. I'm not breaking the Sabbath day. But they missed the whole point, didn't they, right? That's not why God said, keep the Sabbath day holy. He said, keep the Sabbath day holy so you remember God. Not saying, well, you can't work. What he's saying is, remember it and remember God in your life. And make a habit of remembering God. That's the spirit of the law. Okay? Not as they missed the spirit when they brought a little handful of dirt and stepped on it and said, I didn't leave my property. Right? Or I only left it with so many steps. Right? So with that, you have to get focused on what you're doing. Now... 
Let's go to verse number 13. So we can do the right thing, but what do we do? In verse 13, we will find out. All right, now, Paul is a brilliant man. When you read that verse, you've got to read it six times, truthfully. And many verses that Paul writes. These are difficult things that Paul is talking about. So I'm going to try to break it down for you in this way. We've talked about the law and about learning, right? The law is to teach us sinful, that we are sinful. But you know what else it does? When you begin to live with God in your heart, he shows you day by day when you have a failure, when you get knocked down, when you do those things that you shouldn't do. He shows you day by day what your nature really was like. The core of how you think. He begins to teach you Really, that selfishness goes way beyond what you even think. I think pretty good of myself a lot of times. But oftentimes, God knocks me down here or there, a lot of times by me sinning and thinking, oh, I was better than that. I thought I could handle it by myself. And God shows me, you don't have the ability to handle this on your own. You don't even know what sin really is. You don't know how evil you could be. You don't know how bad you could do things. I'm here to teach you how exceedingly wicked sin really is. It's bad. We kind of think, eh, that's not such a bad thing. It doesn't really affect too many people. It's not really such a bad thing. And yet, selfishness is the core of what took Satan out of heaven. That's it. It was selfishness. Self, self-centeredness was what took Satan out of heaven. Satan had a special place in heaven. Satan, it said, walked on the mountain of God and he was literally just underneath God. He was the most beautiful creature God had created. And he said, I am important and I will be God. And in that, he chose self-centeredness. And God took him and anybody who followed and wiped him right out of heaven. We don't realize how destructive sin can really be. And that's one thing it teaches us. When God looks in our heart and works in our heart and we fall and we falter and we do the wrong thing, we're like, oh, I can't believe I want this done. I thought I could have this thing done. God oftentimes shows how tenacious, how stubborn our nature really is. And guess what? If you come from a family of people with strong wills, there's a lot of that. It takes a lot of humility to say, oh, I better just learn to shut my mouth sometimes. Stop talking. Because everything I say 
just ends up coming out more self-centered and more so to learn to control those things from the Holy Spirit that is it he's helping you and yet it keeps going verse number 18 through 20 this is talking Paul is talking about this struggle so read very clearly exactly what we're saying verse 18 19 and 20 please for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So in other words, I want to do good, but I can't find a way to do it inside of me. This is Paul talking. I can't find a way to do it. I want to do it, but not. I can't do it. Verse 19. All right, there is a battle that is going on inside of you. This is the human battle, and you need to understand this because it will not change in your lifetime. You can choose to be a person who knows God and who battles with their sin, who struggles to do right, who wants to do it and often does not find the strength to do it or often chooses the wrong way or often falls, and that is a better path than a person who will not do it and does not see their own sin and does not have a relationship with God. And that's the reason that they can't see their own sin is because they have no relationship or no depth of relationship with God. If you know God personally, he will point out thing after thing after thing after thing. It's like going into the dirtiest, darkest places in your musty, smelly basement and finding it and showing it with the biggest, brightest light and saying, look, the things you didn't really want to see. It's like taking all your friends over and showing them that dirt and that slime and that grease and that nasty stuff and all the bugs and spiders and things that are in there and saying, I'm showing you what it's really like. All right? You can have a basement full of rats, full of rats, and say, I don't have any rats in there because the lights are off. Does that make it that there's no rats in there just because the lights are off and you can't see them? But you turn the lights on and they scurry because they're everywhere. I have been in basements and seen rats and mice and nasty things crawl across what you do when you end up fixing lots of things. You go in nasty places and you say, hmm, this is what things are really like. But people just don't see it. I've worked at big universities and gone to the most disgusting places crawling with cockroaches. And you say, this is the core of what this place really is. No one is exempt. And this is what Paul is saying. You think you are good and right, but you're not. And God will show you and teach you. Now, that's a sad thing to think about, right? That's a tough thing. But your reaction to that matters. Your reaction matters. There was a man who was called the Birdman. 
And everybody's ever heard of Alcatraz? You know what Alcatraz is? That was a famous prison out in California on an island that was only for the worst prisoners that couldn't be handled in other prisons. Inescapable, they said, because it was out in the middle of, of the ocean, basically, a mile of water in between them and, land, and the, any other land. And there was a man called the Birdman, and he was famous. He went to other prisons, but eventually he ended up at Alcatraz with a lot of other bad people. They weren't allowed to talk, could not talk to other inmates, okay? And they had to basically just be in alone for 22 or 23 hours a day in their cell, okay? And someone took and, and did a movie about this bird man. And they said, well, he was just misunderstood and because he did so many great things. In one of the other prisons that he had been in, he had a great love for birds. And he, they allowed him to keep a couple birds in his prison cell with him. And he ended up growing an entire population of birds. He ended up selling birds outside to people, made a very famous thing, and that's what they made this movie about. He was considered this great scientist, very knowledgeable person, and all these sort of things. And they made the movie and said, he was just a misunderstood guy. But one time, when one of the prison guards said, no, you have to go and get back in your cell, he stabbed him to death. Because he didn't want to do what he told him to do. And many other times, he was a very violent man and killed many people. So you can look good from the outside, but there's a reason he's an Alcatraz, right? There's a reason. Not because, the and people wrote, people wrote, little boys that saw these movies, little boys and girls wrote and said to, to the president of the United States, they said, we saw this movie and he's just a misunderstood guy. No, he's a murderer. He's a killer, and that's why he's in this prison. So you can put on a front and seem to be good, but be bad underneath, and God says, I don't know you. Right? But if you go to God and he, you say, I know I'm not good, and you come to him and he teaches you daily, you say, I believe and I want forgiveness and I want to change, then God brings his spirit in you and starts the change. When the bird man got to be in his mid-70s, I think he was, he came up for parole, which was an opportunity to get out if he could say, I've changed. And he says, if you let me out, I don't have much time. I have a lot of people I want to kill. He never changed. The core of him never changed. Bird man or not, okay? He was... At the core of him, he was not interested in changing. But if you have a relationship with God and he changes you and works inside of you and makes new things in you, think about this. And I'll leave you with this. There was a butterfly. Well, he was a, he was a uh, caterpillar. And he crawled into a cocoon. And a young boy came along in this cocoon and he caught this thing at just the right time and the caterpillar was in this cocoon and he could see it was struggling to get out. It had changed to a butterfly and it was pushing and pushing and pushing 
to get out of the cocoon. So he took his jackknife and he slit the cocoon open to help that butterfly. And the butterfly came out and pushed its final way out, flooded up to a branch, sat for a moment, and fell down dead to the ground. That boy thought he was helping. But God created in the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly the need for a struggle. The struggle, scientists have found, that the struggle pushing and pushing and pushing with the wings that they have that they've never had, that just grew onto them during their change, brings blood flow from the core of their body, where they were a worm before, and brings it out to the tips of their wings. And that allows them to be a healthy butterfly. Without the struggle, they cannot make the change. They won't survive. Oftentimes, with the struggle which we have, becoming a believer in God, we have this struggle where we struggle and struggle and struggle with sin, and we fall down and we get back up and say, God, I'm so sorry. And we fall down again and get back up and God, I'm so sorry. I just want to change this. I'm tired of this. And God says, keep struggling. The change comes about. The true change comes about in the ability often to get back up and to trust that God will help you through and to not be on so much of a roller coaster with your emotions every time, but to learn to trust God and smooth out your life more and more as time goes on. It's trusting God. It's the work of the Spirit, not your own work, but the work of the Spirit that does this. We're going to learn next week about what that really means when God is in you, the peace and the freedom that he gives you during this struggle. The struggle is real for sin. And how do we make this right and know and understand, yes, the struggle is real. It needs to be there. It's what brings about a strong Christian with strong faith. All right? The desire to change and do things in a deeper relationship with God has to be the core of where we start. And then we positionally are right, we're dead to sin, and we've got to work out of the cocoon. Right? And the, the struggle is what we need. All right, thank you very much. Have a good day.